the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Perhaps like me this weekend, you're thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., his words and the images of his marches, his protests, his prayers. I think especially of his famous last speech, those words when he said he wasn't worried, he wasn't afraid, he was happy, in fact. Mine eyes have seen the glory, he said. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Those powerful words are familiar to many churchgoers as being from the battle hymn of the Republic. But Martin Luther King Jr. was doing a lot more than simply quoting from a hymn. Because it turns out that hymn is based on a folk tune. And the folk tune especially was popular during the Civil War. Black Americans, African Americans, uh, would change the words depending on who else was around during the Civil War, especially Union troops who were African American, would sing songs to, those, to that tune that inspired them, that reminded them why they were fighting in the first place, what freedom might look like. And then the words could easily be changed if someone maybe were around who couldn't be entirely trusted And so the tune itself was sort of in the spirit of the day, the spirit toward praying for freedom, praying for reform, praying for new life. That tune was known, and then it continued almost to play in the background. In 1861, Julia Ward Howe visited Abraham Lincoln in the White House, And she took to President Lincoln her own hopes and prayers for uh, suffrage, for peace, for uh, abolition of, of slavery. And then after that meeting, she put words to that old tune in what we now have as the battle hymn of the Republic. And so when Martin Luther King is is quoting that hymn, he's quoting and tapping into a long history, a history of protest, a history of prayer for a new day, a prayer for glory. Glory, hallelujah. Uh, Glory becomes the prayer itself. There's an urgency to it, to singing and crying out for glory. It becomes a kind of fight song for victory, a victory that that you can almost taste because you want it so bad. But in that same cry for glory, there's, there's also a sense of already having tasted victory. That's what Dr. King is, is talking about when he says he's been to a mountaintop and he's looked over. He can see what it's going to look like. His faith tells him what it's going to look like. His faith tells him what's possible. His faith helps him see what is inevitable. And this idea of glory pushes him there and helps him be there. What is this glory of God? This glory of God we sing about at the beginning of our worship. We, we sing again in the Sanctus as we celebrate communion. We, we hit notes of glory in the various readings of the day. But what do we mean? What is the glory of God? 
Well, the gospel today, I think, gives us a hint. There in the midst of a crowd, in the midst of a huge party, there's a wedding with plenty of in-laws and outlaws and wedding crashers. And there in the midst of them all is Jesus and his mother Mary. There's a minor crisis, as can happen at any social occasion when it looks like there's not enough to drink. Mary urges Jesus to do something. Do something. And we can almost hear a kind of contemporary mother-son dialogue as Jesus looks at his mother and says, Oh, mother, not now. (laughs) And yet Jesus did move into the moment and make a miracle. John the Evangelist comments on this scene and says this is the first of Jesus' signs, and it reveals his glory. John puts this story into a larger context. He explains that Jesus' use of these purification jars, Jesus is turning water into wine, Jesus is putting marriage in a, in a public and social context rather than just having to do with two people. All of this reveals his glory. It reveals the glory of Christ. It reveals the glory of God. <clears throat> This glory of God often sort of shimmers around the edges of our perception. At first glance, looking at a situation dead on, it seems to be uh, no no possibility, no solution, no way forward. Um, They've run out of wine. What to do? In the gospel, the problem is clear enough, but Mary, Mary begins to imagine at the edge of things, glory bursting in. And so Mary says to Jesus, do something, because she knows it's possible. With her faith, it is possible. She's able to see beyond the ordinary, beyond the normal, beyond the usual hoping, beyond the usual imagining. That's what glory is like. It comes from that place of what can be, of what ought to be, of what might be. Mary points to the glory. She sees it in Jesus, but it's that same glimmer she's seen before. She must have noticed it in Gabriel's first hovering overhead. She saw it in the humble love of Joseph, who believed not only the angel, but also believed Mary. Mary saw glory in the faces of Anna and Simeon in the temple as they held Christ. Mary saw glory at Cana, And she would see it again at Calvary. It's that glory of God to to make more than what things seem to be. The glory of God that enables us to become more, more loving, more faithful, more giving, more believing. It runs throughout our readings. Isaiah, Paul, John the Evangelist, Mary, the mother of God, Martin Luther King, all are saying a similar thing. They're saying, in effect, don't get stuck looking down. Don't get stuck looking at yourself. Don't get stuck counting the cards that you think you've been dealt. Look for glory and live into it. Of course, living into God's glory isn't always easy. Sometimes it gets us into trouble. It did for Jesus. It did for Martin Luther King. It does for the Episcopal Church. 
You might have noticed our churches in the news this week. Again and again, the Episcopal Church, which is to say the Anglican Church in this country and a few others, has refused to get stuck believing that the wine is all dried up, believing that the old ways are ironclad, believing that the Spirit doesn't move or speak anymore. Instead, the Episcopal Church has struggled its way towards believing in God's glory, opening ourselves to God's glory. And so we've been enriched and deepened because of it. In 1976, the Episcopal Church officially approved the ordination of women as priests, and a lot of people got mad. When Barbara Harris was ordained the first female bishop in the Anglican Communion, and by the way, she was African-American, people got mad. That was 1989. She received death threats and bomb threats at the church where she was ordained. In 2003, when Jean Robinson was ordained and consecrated as the first openly gay bishop in the Anglican Communion, again, the volume of disagreement was raised a little more than last summer when the Episcopal Church agreed that everyone who comes together in love should be allowed and and permitted a marriage in church. Of course, other parts of the Anglican Communion went nuts. (laughs) Anglicans in other parts of the world are angry with us. They're angry for a number of reasons, and many of them are extremely complicated. In those parts of the church that have historically been victims of colonization, this allows an opportunity to strike back at what they perceive as cultural imperialism. In other cases, if all the attention is on those crazy Americans and Episcopalians, it allows them to conveniently ignore the problems in their own country. Problems of corruption and polygamy, of poverty, of continued issues of human slavery and sex trafficking. All of that can be ignored and overlooked as long as you're focusing on criticizing others. And then again, in other cases, the Episcopal Church's openness and honesty are painful dialogues on the front page of all the newspapers, puts a bright light on those churches and other parts of the communion that continue to live in hypocrisy and preserve old power structures at the risk of truth and honesty. And so there's a lot to argue about and a lot to think about and a lot to talk about and a lot to pray about. So the Episcopal Church has been put into a kind of ecclesiastical time out. (laughs) If you really are interested in all this, you can read some eloquent uh, remarks by our presiding bishop, Bishop Curry, and our own bishop, Bishop Dietschy. Nothing much has changed. Those churches and dioceses in mission partnership with people all around the world will continue. And as with any other great issue of the day, People on the ground, people in the pews, tend to love one another and pray with one another and sing and praise God. I don't mean to sound arrogant or self-righteous as an Episcopalian, but I would point out simply that our being punished for living out the full gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel of welcome and joy and inclusion, 
Um, it puts us in pretty good company when you think about the history of the church. We're living toward the glory of God with outcasts and protesters, with saints and martyrs, with people like Julia Ward Howe and Martin Luther King Jr. and Barbara Harris and many, many more. In today's gospel, the Virgin Mary shows us how to live into God's glory. She puts it simple. She says, look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. She says it to the servants, to the waiters, the the stewards. Do whatever he tells you. She says the same thing to us. Look to Jesus and follow him. Wherever that leads, wherever that takes you, Do what he did, love like he loved, unsettle, unnerve, and upset like he did, like he does, all for God's glory. Gerard Manley Hopkins saw God's glory in what he described as dappled things in the multitude of God's making. He saw God's glory in trout and fire coals and farmlands and trades. He writes all things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Praise him indeed as we struggle to live into the glory of God. But it's not always easy for us to see with Hopkins' eye. Sometimes God's glory is hidden, it's beyond, it's obscured. We can't quite find it or imagine it. And that's where the Virgin Mary's advice comes in handy. Look to Jesus. Don't worry about anything more, just look to Jesus and follow where he points. And so for the scientist, the one working in science, glory might lurk right at the point of refusing to settle for the same old way of doing things, for the given answer, for the obvious solution. One might ask Jesus to point the way forward. For the business person, it might come with risk, Um, not the kind of risk to make more simply for the sake of more, but the kind of risk of an entrepreneur, a startup, an investment that stands a chance of overflowing into the common good. And so ask Jesus for help. Make your move, say a prayer, and allow God's glory to do the rest. Maybe you're a teacher and you can't quite get through to that one student. You're out of energy and you've run out of tricks. Well, through prayer, put that child's hand in the hand of Jesus Look to Jesus. He'll show the way forward, leading into God's glory. Wherever we might be stuck, whether it's in a relationship or a habit or an outlook, whether we're looking for a job or stuck in an old job, we can all of us follow that simple advice of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ and follow him. Do what he tells us. Do the next right thing in faith, and then let God's glory come. (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. said his eyes had seen the glory of the Lord, but it was more than that. He saw and pointed to and lived into God's glory with his whole being. 
And so on this weekend of celebrations and still with the New Year's beginnings, may we allow God to use everything we have, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hearts, our hands, everything we are, have been, and ever will be, to perceive and point to God's ever-unfolding glory. Glory that will move us over mountaintops, that will free us, and that will save us into eternal life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.